Hi, welcome to the Dewey Decimal Podcast. I'm your host, Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries Magazine, the magazine of the American Library Association. Now, uh, what you hear behind me, that, that merriment, that energy, that's the sound of 16,000 librarians and library professionals, all of whom converged on Orlando, Florida in late June for the American Library Association's 2016 Annual Conference and Exhibition. Now, if you're not familiar with ALA Annual, just let me break it down for you really fast. It's one of the most important educational and networking events in the library world each year, and Orlando is no exception. Annual 2016 was six days of forums, workshops, meetings, learning, and an exhibit hall packed with technology and publishers eager to get books in people's hands. And of course, there were the guest speakers. Joining us in Orlando were uh, actress and author Jamie Lee Curtis, author, TV host, and friend of Dewey Decibel Brad Meltzer, professor and political commentator Michael Eric Dyson, actress and advocate Diane Guerrero, and many more. The June 12 shooting at the Pulse nightclub in Orlando was much on the minds of members and speakers of the conference as well. Rainbow ribbons were ubiquitous, and a memorial was held with an appearance from civil rights pioneer John Lewis. This month on Dewey Decibel, we go back to Orlando to revisit the sights, the sounds, and the people that made the conference so special this year. It's a whole ALA family affair for this episode, too. We join American Library's Associate Editor Tara Dankowski as she roams the Orange County Convention Center talking to attendees about their experiences at the conference. Next, American Library's Senior Editor Amy Carlton talks to Peter Coyle. He's a Central Library District Manager at Dallas Public Library, and he was then the chair of ALA's GLBT Roundtable, and they talk about the Pulse Memorial. We then shift gears completely to go behind the scenes of the ALA Store at Annual. What goes on in there? What are they doing? We all want to know. Sam and Bergia from ALA Publishing chats with Rob Christopher, ALA Editions Marketing Coordinator, about the store's nuts and bolts and much more. And finally, American Library Senior Editor George Eberhardt sits down for a fascinating one-on-one -on -one chat with Michael Eric Dyson. They talk about everything from the rule of libraries in his life growing up, to President Obama's legacy, to modern hip-hop. This is a must-listen episode, people. But first, offering professional development resources for the library world, ALA Publishing is the perfect source for all of your online learning needs. They offer workshops and e-courses on a breadth of topics, including marketing, programming, cataloging, copyright, digitization, instructional design, information literacy, and more. These convenient, hands-on learning experiences are led by experts in the field and provide training that will help you and your colleagues make the best decisions for your organization. Sign up to take an e-course or workshop today to enhance your skill set and add relevant experience to your resume. For the full listings of opportunities, go to alastore.ala.org slash e-learning. American Library's Associate Editor, Tara Dinkowski, is a talker. So who better to send out amongst the masses at Annual to discover what brought them each to Orlando, what they're doing there, and what's really exciting them about the conference? Their answers may surprise you. Can you just tell me your name and where you work? Um, my name is Kim Siegel and I work at an elementary school in Reston, Virginia. Okay. And why did you decide to participate in the readout for Banned Books today? You know, I, um, I feel that it's really important. I didn't think, I thought banned books were a thing of the past. And then just this year, I actually had parents protest and want a book taken from my shelves and, and came across that, that very real um, thread of censorship that I don't want my students to ever have to go through. So that was why it was important to me. What happened with that situation? 
um, we were able to resolve it. We went to the superintendent of schools and kind of insisted that she um, let us do our job as librarians and look for books that had starred reviews and put those on the shelves and make them to available, make them available to students so that they realize that, you know, that there are children like this in their lives or that there are children like themselves in their lives and, and that it was a perfectly normal thing. Um, what book did you read here today? I read from George by Alex Gino. I'm not familiar with it. Um, it. It's a wonderful story. It's about someone who was born as a male named George, but who feels herself to be female. And um, she's in elementary school, I believe, and she decides to audition for the part of Charlotte in Charlotte's Web, Charlotte's Web the production they're doing for their school play. And it's um, very interesting, the reaction of the people around her, her teachers, when she, when she says she wants to play the girl, but they see her as a boy, and it's just how she deals with all of that. Thank you so much, Kim. Thank you. Um, could you tell me your name and where you work? My name is Patty Sadenberg, and I work at the Collegiate School Library in New York City. And it looks like you are carrying a lot of arcs today. I how many? I Maybe like 20 in your arms? I feel like it. <laughs> and it is completely unusual. I usually don't pick up this. <laughs> this is, so what made you break with tradition this year? I ended up seeing a lot of titles that look good, and I and I really sort of perused the backs and read them, and more and more publishing is in my wheelhouse, I guess, this year. But usually I just walk out with one book, and I only, my goal is only one book, and this year I'm not. How are you going to get them home? Are you going to pack them in the suitcase or mail them back? Or? Box them up, mail them back. <laughs> Everyone seems to do that here, huh? It's easier. <laughs> do you want to carry your bag? No. Like lead? It's basically lead. <laughs> That's yeah. wonderful. Okay, thank you so much. Can you state your name and where you work? Melissa Becker, American University Library. Fantastic. And uh, it looks like you're carrying a lot of books. What, uh, what kind of haul are you bringing back? <laughs> I am bringing back um, books for my children. I have a 12-year-old and I have a 15-year-old, and they always look forward to me bringing back um, galleys for them. So I'm trying to find some middle school. I found a lovely middle school uh, novels for my 12-year-old and some interesting historical and nonfiction and um, other things for my 15-year-old. Awesome. Have they ever been here? Have they ever met authors? They, or? Have, they have not been able to, to come but maybe, maybe someday. Okay, thank you. Can you tell me your name and where you work? Sure, I'm Sharon Rollins. I'm the Youth Services Specialist at the New Jersey State Library in Trenton, New Jersey, and I'm standing in line at the Baker and Taylor booth waiting for Lori House Anderson, who's signing her second book in the the American Revolution series, Chains. The first one was Forged, and the new one, which is not out until the fall, is Ashes. And it's middle grade historical fiction, um, the slaves who worked, who helped, uh, well, it was the British and the American Revolution and, and how some of them ended up fighting for their masters because the masters didn't go fight. Um, it's amazingly written. The first one, the Scott O'Dell Award. Uh, she's, as everyone knows, just a, a, a spectacular author for all ages. And I'm eagerly awaiting it. And I've only read the, I admit, I only read the first book in the series, so I'm very excited to have both now, so I can read them all together, one after the other. Awesome. Are there uh, any other authors you met this weekend or are excited to meet? 
Um, or any programs that you've attended that I've, have been wonderful? I've been to a number of diversity programs, a number yeah. of programs where the authors are representing their cultures, their race, and saying that they need to see more books. They, as you know, when they were growing up, they did not see books that reflected their lives, and so they are now writers because of that. Yeah. And how that we still have a long way to go, but we're getting better at it. So that's I was here for a lot of that. Um, and there are there's so many authors I'm excited to stand in line for, but I'm blanking out. Can you uh, tell me your name and where you work? Sure. My name is Harold George. I'm the Extension Services Manager for the St. John's County Library System, and we are headquartered in St. Augustine, Florida, the nation's oldest city. What compelled you to uh, do a readout from a banned book today? Um, I've always been most interested in the intellectual freedom position and philosophy of librarianship. Sometimes I'm not even sure I can call myself a librarian, but I like that leadership that libraries provide. And um, I feel like we have especially needed that leadership a lot lately. And um, in the context of the Pulse nightclub shooting, it seems more acute than ever. What book did you decide to read from today? Um, I read a book called October Morning, Songs from Matthew Shepard. And I wasn't even sure what I was going to read until I walked up here and I saw it. And I had thought about Matthew Shepard two weeks ago when I saw all the pictures of the people who were shot. Beautiful young people who were doing nothing any more harmful and perhaps having one extra alcoholic beverage that night because they were happy to be alive and be with people like themselves. And I remembered Matthew Shepard. He was doing nobody any harm in any way, shape, or form other than being who he was. Thank you so much. Thank you. The June 12 shooting at Orlando's Pulse nightclub was a presence this year at annual. There's no denying it. 49 people were killed and 53 were wounded just two weeks before we were all scheduled to hit the city. Pulse appeared in conversations and on rainbow ribbons pinned to shirts and sweaters. It was with the attendees who donated their blood for the victims and at the library safety sessions. Like the rest of the country, the tragedy led to reflection and a feeling of solidarity throughout the conference. And both of those aspects were strong at a memorial service held during the conference, which included a surprise appearance from civil rights pioneer U.S. Representative John Lewis from Georgia. Peter Coyle, the then chair of ALA's GLBT Roundtable, was involved with organizing the memorial and he spoke at it as well. American Library senior editor Amy Carlton recently spoke with Peter about the service, the shooting victims, and much more. Can you tell me how the how the memorial came together and how the roundtable got involved? Sure. Um, so within, I think, you know, hours of, of that uh, tragedy happening, ALA staff was obviously aware that we were going to be in Orlando very soon. And a lot of members reached out to both myself and other ALA staff asking what we were going to do. Um, and a group of people at ALA, um, including um, the exec director and ALA president and staff from ODLOS and conference services got together. Um, a lot of people wanted to have some sort of vigil or some event, and um, they looked at the schedule to see what, what was feasible, and they had the auditorium already booked for um, for the conference to use, but nothing was in it, um, and it was a perfect spot and a perfect time, and so they decided to organize um, organize a memorial. Um, some people wanted a, a candlelight vigil, but just the logistics of that um, 
you know, make, makes that sort of a kind of hard, especially last minute and mm -hmm. at a conference type event. Um, so they, they picked the date and the time and they reached out to the round table and a reformer uh, to ask if um, we would participate and uh, we obviously said yes. So you, during your, uh, your portion of the memorial, you emphasized the, the individuality of, of the victims, of the shooting victims, not to consider them as, as a mass of 49 people, but to, to remember that they were individuals who were parents and children and friends. How did you, how did you decide what you were going to talk about that day? Well, um, Deb Sika and I, I talked about, um, speaking, and we both agreed that we were going to speak together jointly. Um, we knew it was going to be a, a hard hard task to do, um, and so we decided to do it together. And um, I actually started a, a Google Doc, and I just started typing some things, and I sent the link to, to Deb, and then a couple of hours later, I came back to it, and she was working on it at the same time I was, and we actually, we actually worked on it um, virtually at the same time. We could both see what we were both writing. Mm -hmm. um, so we actually didn't do any talking while we wrote it. We just typed back and forth because she's in California and I'm in Texas. And um, it just came together as we both typed. We could see what we each, each of us were writing. And um, and we just kind of kind of worked together um, in kind of an interesting silent sort of um, uh, collaboration in the in the same moment of time. Um, but I, I think for me at least it was important to um to focus you know not not mixing all the victims together as you know as as one thing which are victims and that that's the thing that's important mm -hmm. to note but that they are that they were individuals that they were you know people and not just a group um and that was that was important to me what was your experience of that morning like um, it was it was kind of nerve wracking a little bit. Um, I think we were we were calm. Um, at least I was calm, but it was an underlying, you know, an underlying emotion there. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. So when um, when John Lewis, I I also attended the memorial, and when when Congressman Lewis showed up, it seemed to be kind of abrupt. So it was it was abrupt for you as well that he just Yeah, in the middle kind of, of a last in the middle thing. of of Julie uh Julie Tadaro's speaking we saw the the screen change and I think she noticed it and I think I think she was trying to figure out a, a way to, to finish her remarks so that we'd get the congressman yeah. um up on stage and I, I think um I, I think it worked well and I I think it was um it was a very nice gesture and a very um very good that he was able to come. Yeah, it was uh it was very it was very powerful but also um restrained in a way that he was uh was able to kind of keep the the tone of the event focused on the event and not on himself. I mean he is kind of a civil rights celebrity. Yeah, he's, he's kind of a, a, a large <laughs> a large figure in his own right and and I think it added. Um, it was. It was a, a. There was a gravity to the to the memorial, but I think him being able to attend and, and give some remarks added a little bit more gravity to it. Um, and underscored, I think, the the seriousness of of what had happened, and yeah. and I think the the national attention and the importance 
um, that was being focused on it. Um, and and that was, uh, I think, appropriate. And yeah, and we're yeah. we're a few weeks away from it now. But he was coming, you know, a day off of the the sit-in on the House floor. Yeah, in fact, I'm, I'm I'm fairly certain that they weren't sure he was going to even be able to attend his event. I I know that they had talked about him possibly having to Skype into the the conference mm -hmm. um, because because of that sit-in and and that yeah. action. Um, so, and I, I think that um, I, I think that it was you know, we we wanted to be responsive. We needed to be responsive, and I think we we needed to have have that event in Orlando, um, you know, and especially given the fact that um, you know that the community was it was a, a the GOBD community and and the Latino community as well. Um, I think involving reforma um, was definitely. Um, an important aspect of it, I think that, and I, I think, and I think that's kind of the point I was maybe trying to make in my remarks was that, mm -hmm. um, you know, these these individuals were they were not just one thing, you know, they were multifaceted individuals, you know, they were they were part of the GOPD community, but they're also Latino, and they were, you know, they were they were all these other things, and and I I think they were attacked because they were fit. In this one pigeonhole of you know the GOBT community, but they they don't fit in just that one area, and no one does. And I think that um, you know I, I think that's the message that that people can can remember that when you see someone, you you I think automatically put them in one box, but you can't fit in one box. And when you focus on the one box, that's that's when um, intolerance and, and hatred really comes out is when people are fixated on one aspect of someone's life or their character or their personality. Um, and there's there's really more to someone than just that one thing. I think that was all the questions I had. Was there was there anything else that you wanted to talk about as far as the memorial or um, anything else in Orlando or um I I I maybe want to talk a little bit about um so when we we had a phone call with with ALA probably it was in fact after after the after the um the shooting that that weekend I'm trying to think my schedule but anyway we had a we had a, a phone call very soon um after the, after the shooting with ALA staff to talk about what what ALA could do um and that and one of the things we talked about were we're doing buttons or ribbons or something and mm -hmm. um and I will just say that that within 24 hours of us having that conversation, ALA had ordered um, 20,000 of those rainbow rainbow ribbons, yeah. and they had them there um, in time for for conference to start. Um, so I want to say that our conversation was on Monday, I think, um, but they had them there by by Friday when people were registering. Um, in fact, they arrived that morning and they were putting them out as people were arriving. Um, but I just say ALA has been was very responsive and very and recognized um, the importance of uh, of needing to do something for the members, um, not not just the GOBT members, but I think everyone um, I think was impacted by by this, knowing that we were going to Orlando and this, this had happened. I think it was important to our members um, to do something because we're we're a caring profession. That's why we do what we do. We're we're interested in bettering the community and doing things that that make our cities and our our communities, um, you know, better places to live and be. And 
ALA actually um, did a couple of things behind the scenes um, at ALA headquarters. They they raised the rainbow flag, and that was that was something that that they did on their own. They didn't they didn't ask the members if they should. They just did that because um, as as people, I think the ALA staff are just some first of all some of the best people around. I've always been impressed by by the ALA staff, but they're they're very cognizant of the fact that that they work for the librarians around the United States and they're trying to to do the best they can and and they're they're just good people in general. That's lovely to say. Thank you. Well, I I really think that. I really think that. And I I I in fact when I, I was sent a, a a note or some someone sent me something that told me that they'd that they'd raised the 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 pride flag at ALA headquarters and I I emailed Keith Michael Fields and, and just told him and I it was it was a heartfelt and a very sincere message that it really meant a lot to me. Um not not just as the as the chair of the round table, but just as an association member to have an association that is so open and accepting and, and wants to do things for the members no matter what what you know, what background or what um what what form or size or shape they take that the association is you know, recognizes that it takes all of us to, to do the things we do. Many thanks again to Peter Coyle for speaking with Dewey Decibel. If you'd like to learn more about ALA's Orlando support activities, visit 2016.alaannual.org slash Orlando relief activities. We'll have a link on our Twitter and Facebook accounts too. Navigating the home video market can be a daunting task. Hundreds of DVDs, Blu-ray discs, and digital-only films are released each month. Now, if you're a librarian tasked with stocking your branch with the latest films for your patrons, or just a movie buff looking to add to your home collection, you need as your guide a trusted source with its pulse on the market and the industry. Video Librarian Magazine is that source. Video Librarian is a video review magazine for public, school, academic, and special libraries, as well as for film fans who are interested in a wider variety of films that are found in the average video store or online outlet. Written by Video Librarian staff, librarians, teachers, and film critics, the magazine offers over 200 reviews each issue. If you've ever picked up a copy of Video Librarian and just skinned its pages, you can't help be wowed by the volume and depth of its content. Every kind of film imaginable can be found reviewed in its pages. Visit videolibrarian.com to learn more. If you've been to ALA Annual, you've no doubt walked by the ALA store dozens of times. It's usually buzzing with activity, people buying books, coming in and out, authors signing their works, but what actually goes into making all that day-to-day -day magic happen? ALA Publishing's Sam Bergia and ALA Editions' Rob Christopher get to the bottom of it. Hi Rob, who runs the ALA store? Uh, the ALA store is uh, basically run and coordinated by various uh, sections of ALA publishing, including ALA Editions, ALA Graphics, and ALA Neil Schumann. Nice. And what type of products are represented? Uh, we sell a lot of um, posters, bookmarks, and a lot of gift type items so that people who go to the conference can take back some goodies for the people who couldn't go with them. And we also sell uh, a range of new and best-selling books uh, published by ALA Editions, ALA Neil Schumann, and various divisions of ALA. What would you say are the best-selling items this conference? Uh, one of the best-selling items is 
um, guide to adult programs uh, for millennials and beyond that sold really well the weeding handbook by Rebecca Vinook has sold really well and also the guide to the Coretta Scott King Awards uh, sold out so um, a lot of great books have been selling well. Great. And how many titles and products do you send to annual? I don't have the exact count, but it's definitely several hundred. Uh, it's quite a production to get the entire store built from scratch uh, in a single day. And then, of course, at the end of the conference, we have to pack everything away. Yeah, how long does setup take? Uh, usually takes uh, seven or eight hours. Wow. And what about teardown? Uh, hopefully, a teardown <laughs> will be done uh, in about two to three hours. Just depends on uh, how many uh, books we still have in stock and how many volunteers we have to help us out. And when does the staff arrive? We usually arrive, uh, the conference usually starts on Friday. Uh, we usually arrive Wednesday and Thursday so that we can get started bright and early Thursday morning to uh, start putting the bookstore together. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about the author signings that you hold at the ALA store? Yes, uh, we love to uh, highlight new and best-selling books uh, by ALA authors. So we just schedule a time for them to sit at a table with their latest book or two and uh, talk to people who might be interested in the subject, do a little networking, uh, it works, it, uh, it works really well. Everyone's um, really thrilled to, you know, kind of just put a face to the name. This year, the marketing staff had a few events outside of the ALA store. Can you tell me about those? Yes, uh, we did a great uh, program called Supercharged Storytimes, uh, which was basically presented by the authors of the book by the same name, Saroj Goding, uh, J. Elizabeth Mills, and Kathleen Campana. And uh, basically it was just a chance to kind of talk more in depth about the stuff that's in the book, uh, where the book came from, to do some uh, practice story times and um, just kind of get people excited. And uh, it's very well attended. I think there were at least 200 people there. Wow, that's awesome. So uh, it's nice to just be able to sort of uh, go beyond the boundaries of the store to do something different. Yeah, great. Well, I think that's all we have time for. Thanks for meeting with us today. You're welcome. Thanks to Sam and Rob for that peek inside the ALA store. You can find all the titles that they mentioned at alastore.ala.org. So let's talk about Hoopla, okay? Hoopla, really. How can you not talk about Hoopla? It has that perfect name, Hoopla. Kind of bubbles off the tongue. It's a name that you enjoy saying. It's a name that you remember, Hoopla. But what is it? Hoopla is a revolutionary digital service that brings hundreds of thousands of movies, music albums, audiobooks, and more to your library. From Hollywood blockbusters and best-selling artists, and not just the hits, you also get the niche and hard-to-find titles as well. Really, you'll find everything you need on Hoopla. Now, Hoopla Digital can be a part of everyday life for everybody. And today, that includes kids with a new Hoopla Kids Mode setting. Hoopla Kids Mode is a gateway to a multi-format family digital media experience. All of Hoopla content, books, video, music, all of it's been selected and brought together in one place to give kids and families an environment where young minds can explore and discover the world around them safely through media. So please, 
check out the Hoopla Kids mode on Hoopla, because you know, as they say, it's a Hoopla happy place for everybody. Visit HooplaDigital.com today for more information. Michael Eric Dyson is everywhere lately. One of our most renowned public intellectuals, he is a professor of sociology at Georgetown University, a political analyst for MSNBC, and the author of 17 books on everything from Hurricane Katrina to Tupac Shakur. His most recent book is The Black Presidency, Barack Obama and the Politics of Race in America. Dyson spoke at the opening general session at the uh, 2016 ALA Annual Conference, and he sat down with American Library senior editor George Eberhardt for an engaging, lively talk before he took the stage. Welcome, Professor Dyson. Thank you for having me. First, a question about yourself. Uh, you grew up in the inner city of Detroit, but somehow managed to read the Harvard classics and such authors as W.E.B. Du Bois and Bertrand Russell. How did you discover literature? Well, my teachers introduced me to literature early on. Uh, obviously, my, my own household, my mother was an extremely, is an extremely literate woman, uh, read voraciously, and I picked that habit up from her. My Sunday school teachers uh, encouraged the habit of literacy by recitation of set pieces in Sunday school. And then in my uh, elementary school, Mrs. James, my fifth grade teacher, really jump-started uh, my deep and abiding love for public recitation of poetry, for learning as much as I could about black history, and of delving deeply into the ocean of knowledge uh, that was presented in libraries. So I was able to, to, to latch on to all of those exciting and uh, I think very catalytic moments of my own existence and libraries are central uh, to my own sense of literacy. What are some of the things that librarians can do to get young people of color engaged in learning about their history and culture? Well, they can buy books that are relevant to these young people. Now, you know, some people are pretty much snobbish about what literature people should read. Me, I'm not. I believe it's like Jesus meeting the woman at the well. He didn't give her a disquisition or a dissertation on theological redemption or metanoia. What he said basically was, why don't you uh, give me a drink of water? And when she gave him a drink of water, then he began to make an analogy. You know, I'm the water of life and began to talk to her about her own life. I think you should meet kids where they are. So if they're into hip hop novels, if they're into urban literature, if they're into Donald Goins, meet them there. Allow them to read understand what literacy is about, and then transition into other forms of literature. You know, Stephen King will be seen in about maybe half a century as one of the greatest literateurs of our age, but he was seen as a hack and genre writer to begin with. I mean, Melville was being published in pulp fiction in magazines, and now is seen as the Shakespearean, most Shakespearean figure of American writers. So I think, you know, we should reach out to young people where they are, teach rap music, lyrics, as a way to draw people in, to teach them about enjambment, about um, you know, internal rhymes, teach them about iambic pentameter. Uh, if they listen to Jay-Z, just the other day I got lynched by some crooked cops, and to this day them saying cops on the beat getting major pay. But when I get my check, they taking tax out, so we paying the cop to knock the blacks out. Well, that's really Tupac Shakur, not Jay-Z. But the point is, Jay-Z said, now all my teachers couldn't reach me, and my mama couldn't beat me, hard enough to match the pain of my pop not seeing me. 
So with that disdain in my membrane, got on my pimp game, blank the world, my defense came. My point is, reach out to young people. Look at Jay-Z's quest for literacy. Look at his struggle for literacy. Look at his teachers who were present in his life and look at the social obstacles that prevented the flourishing of a kind of ethic of literacy that was traditional, but it became alternative. Rap music became a sphere within which he began to articulate his views of the world. So reach kids where they are, start them early. Uh, there was a big debate, you know, 15, 20 years ago about Ebonics, Ebony Phonics, as Robert Williams coined the phrase, in Oakland, California. Oh my God, what are we doing? Uh, are we telling, teaching young kids not to speak correctly? No, of course not. We're saying speak the language of their indigenous and native haunts and then transition into broader arenas. So I think librarians should do the same. I think young people who are turned on to literature are turned on when the literature they read is about the lives they live. Well, you've written extensively on hip-hop music. Has, um, has hip-hop changed in the past eight years during the Obama administration? That's a great question. I think in, in some ways it certainly has. I mean, there was a tremendous social critique uh, within hip-hop that was probably uh, mitigated, maybe uh, you know, relieved a bit, because the man was not a white man, it was now a black man. That threw us off a little bit. Wait a minute, the guy running things <laughs> is a black man. So no more of the George Bush as a horrible figure projected by hip hop or Ronald Reagan or even Bill Clinton. Barack Obama has been for the most part treated quite well within hip hop and yet uh, during his eight year presidency, Black Lives Matter has occurred. Uh, police brutality has occurred. So you've seen some resurgence of socially conscientious music from J. Cole, from Kendrick Lamar. Even though she's not a hip-hop artist, she incorporates some elements, Beyonce. These figures have taught us that even under the first black presidency, there's a need to have literature and literacies that address the existential, moral, political, and social crises that this country faces. In the black presidency, you've praised Obama as an exceptional president. Has his strategy changed in the last few months in terms of his uh, failure to address some of the uh, issues of importance to African Americans during his last year? Do you, has it changed? Well, it's, it's in, when, in one sense, it's changed for the better. He's finally, um, I think, listened to some of the critique that has been launched his way, including mine but loving critique, not the nasty, vehement, vituperative assault upon him that's unprincipled, but principled criticism. And I think that Obama has listened. Why? Because police brutality is undeniable. Why? Because smartphones are capturing, you know, black people being abused, Latino people being abused, poor people being abused. And as a result of that, it's undeniable. He has a greater, if you will, cache of images from which to draw to articulate a viewpoint to the American public that, hey, this is pretty wrong and pretty problematic. And he's been pushed by social movements like Black Lives Matter, and he's addressed it through the criminal justice system. Of course, Eric Holder, the first attorney, black attorney general, had uh, years before Obama laid out the necessity for this, but the, uh, the Obama administration caught up and the president himself has begun to address this, but not nearly as much as it should, and there are still some problems. He goes to Newtown, and he addresses those you know, families in the immediate aftermath of that horrible uh, murder, mass murder, uh, by a young man who was living with his single mother. And yet, in Chicago, single mothers become the unwitting culprits of the president's rhetoric, which is quite unfortunate. He says nothing about that in Newtown, but he makes it an issue 
uh, in Chicago. He had to be forced to come to Chicago, prodded to come to Chicago, even cajoled to come to Chicago, where disproportionate numbers of African-American people live, suffer, and unfortunately bleed and die uh, at the hands of people who willed urban carnage. So the president has rushed to Hurricane Sandy, but been forced to come to Flint, Michigan, uh, a, 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 a governmental-produced crisis that has led to the contamination of drinking water uh, for so many thousands of poor black people. So what the president does uh, by choice for some communities, he has to be encouraged and prodded uh, for others. And I think in that way, uh, we have to use our own conscientious objection uh, to some of the tough love that he has distributed, but also embrace him as a person who's been subject to some of the most acrimonious and nasty assaults that one might imagine that a president would have to endure. How do you think Obama will handle the post-presidency? How can he best fulfill his role as the first black ex-president? Man, he'll have a field day. I hope he makes a bunch of money. He'll probably be part of an ownership team that will own an NBA team. It was announced the other day that if the right deal comes along, he's going to do it. And why wouldn't he? He's a great, great basketball head, mind, and fan. And uh, since he's run the country, what the heck? He might be able to run a basketball. Well, no, I take that back. You know, running a basketball team is far more difficult than running this country. No. <laughs> Obviously, the president will have much experience in negotiating hostilities, differences, making trades, and figuring out uh, what to do with the team. It won't be as consequential as the Iran deal, but the deal to trade a superstar and get another one might be a problem as well. So he'll be uh, well-versed in that. The Senate just this week rejected another round of gun control measures. What's your take on firearms legislation? Will it help reduce violence in the U.S., or does that require a more far-reaching approach? Well, it's both and. Let's start with the gun legislation, though. Uh, let's make it more difficult for people who are on a no-fly list to get a gun. I don't know. Does that sound crazy to you? That if you're a suspected terrorist, we shouldn't sell you a firearm. I mean, it just seems to make sense. Whether you're on the left or in independent or on the right, it just makes no sense. Here we are in Orlando, um, Florida, where the most, one of the most vicious and heinous crimes ever committed, and certainly the most violent act of mass murder in America occurred not, you know, a week and a half ago, two weeks ago. So we have to address this. Uh, because it's insidious, whether it's because of race, whether it's because of sexual orientation, whether it's because of class or religion. The point is we must not arm people to do harm. If a person has a knife trying to hurt you, he might hurt a few people, but he's going to be taken down. She will be taken down. You have an automatic weapon, hundreds of people in aggregate will die. And, and as we saw in Orlando, 49 people dead as a result of equipping a man with, with, with weaponry that should only be deployed on the front lines of a war. So I think we have to have both the legislation and the kind of moral revolution of values that Martin Luther King Jr. spoke about that says, why are we so addicted to violence and why do we think that we have to uh, support the Second Amendment to no end. After all, it's the second amendment, not the second commandment. You would think Moses himself came off the mountain, thou shalt be able to bear guns. You know, and the founding fathers had muskets, man. That's different than having an automatic weapon. So I think we have to have common sense and the revolution of values that is extremely important.
thanks again to Michael Eric Dyson for speaking with American Libraries and Dewey Decibel. His book, The Black Presidency, Barack Obama, and the Politics of Race in America, is published by Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. That wraps another edition of the Dewey Decibel Podcast. Thanks for taking a little trip back to sunny and very hot Orlando, Florida with us. Tune in next month when we look at library architecture and design. What you need to know and who you need to talk to when you build a facility. And we're also going to look at new libraries that are really wowing us here at Dewey Decibel. Also, don't forget, visit us on Facebook and Twitter. We value and we want your feedback. And if you're streaming us on iTunes, leave us a review. Let us know how you feel. Until then, I'm Phil Moorhart, Associate Editor of American Libraries Magazine. We'll see you next month. No matter what, what, you know, what background or what, um, what, what form or size or shape they take, that the association is, you know, recognizes that it takes all of us to, to do the things we do.